The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hey, thanks for gathering with us this evening. If you're new, we haven't met before. Uh, My name is Tim. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Citizens. Uh, If you are new, we'd love to connect with you. The easiest way to do that is to fill out that little blue connect card in your bulletin. Uh, We're not going to spam you or anything. We just want to come alongside of you, answer any questions you have, uh, help you if you're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, if you're looking for a church home or any of the things. Uh, We'd love to meet you and and answer any questions you have and get to know you. Uh, We're going to be continuing. We've got four weeks left in our series on the book of James. So grab a Bible, go to James chapter 4. We're going to be hanging out in just a few verses this evening. Uh, James chapter 4, we're going to look at 13 through 17. Uh, I think we have a really, really practical passage and sermon in store for us. I think it's going to be really helpful. But let me pray for us and uh, ask the Lord to be uh, with us as he already is. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, so much for, for who you are. God, thank you that uh, as we just sang about, God, because our sinless Savior died, that all who trust in you, our sinful souls are counted free. Now, your wrath was, in fact, satisfied on the cross. And so because of that, we get the incredible, overwhelming, amazing, undescribable, privilege of actually getting to be in relationship with you. What a glorious reality. What a glorious beauty. God, we have a lot of plans. We have a lot of decisions. We have a lot of things that we are thinking about and praying through and wrestling with. And so, God, I pray that in the midst of all of that, God, would you give us wisdom as we look at your passage uh, here in James, your word, your revelation to us. We need you. We love you. Pray like things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me start tonight with a question. Sebastian, you might want to turn me down just a little bit. Let me start with a question. What are your plans for the future? What are you planning? What are you thinking about? What are you dreaming about? What are your plans for the future? There's something I've noticed as I've uh, kind of gotten into adulthood is that one of the realities of being an adult is that you have to make some plans. And with those plans come decisions. Decisions like, uh, should I get married? Who should I marry? When should we get married? Where should I live? What should I study? What job or career should I go after? Part of being an adult is having to make decisions and having to make plans. And I've noticed that there's kind of one of three postures we take towards this reality of the forced nature of adulthood, meaning we have to make some plans. Option one is some of y'all are like, nah, Tim, I've never made a plan in my entire life. Joke's on you. I just roll with the punches and que sera, sera, whatever happens, happens. This sermon has nothing to do with me. It does have to do with you. We'll talk about you in a second. Some of us, hypothetically, are Enneagram one-wing ones, like myself. 
We plan everything. A few uh, months ago, uh, Lindsay and I sat down, and she says it happened differently, but I swear this is what happened. We planned our vacations as a family for the next 50 years. We were like, that year we're going to go here. This year we're going to do that. Here's the life map of the Olson household. Some of us love that. We're like, yes, let's get some plans and some spreadsheets and some Google Docs and all that. What are we going to do? Let's make some plans. But I would say for the vast majority of us, we would fall somewhere in the middle. Like we kind of understand, okay, in order to be a responsible adult, I should probably make some plans, make some decisions, do some things. And so let me ask you a question. For the majority of us in the room, what are you planning? What are you dreaming about? What are you thinking about? What do you want to see happen? What do you want to accomplish? What are you hoping to experience in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years of your life? You see, all of us, I think to some extent, we have some things we want to see happen. We have some hopes We have some dreams, we have some goals, we have some ideas, and with those dreams, goals, ideas, and plans come some decisions. What James is going to address today in these few verses at the end of chapter 4 is what does our living, active, vibrant faith in Jesus have to do with our planning and decision-making? What does it look like as a follower of Christ to make godly, biblical, wise decisions, big or small? And this is what we're going to see. This is kind of the overarching theme of this passage. Living faith humbly plans for the future with God. Living faith humbly plans for the future with God. James chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 13. Let's walk through it together. James writes, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such or such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Okay, so once again, James introduces to us a hypothetical group of people. And this hypothetical group is some that he can argue with and speak directly to. And this group in particular is a deliberately self-confident group of planners. So they've made some plans to go to a different city and to conduct some business and to make some money. And this hypothetical that James introduces probably has to do with what's happening in the church he's writing to at the time. So during this period of authorship, around 60 AD or so, was a period marked by growing commercial activity, specifically in the Greek cities surrounding the city of Palestine. So what was happening is all of these Jewish folks were believing in Jesus, and then they were leaving Palestine to go to these Hellenistic Greek cities cities and start businesses and make some money. So he's talking to this group and saying, hey, you guys who are assuming I'm going to go here, make these plans, start a business, make some money. Here's what I have to say to you. And he writes with a specific goal. He's not after trying to rebuke them for wanting to make money or making plans for the future or even starting businesses. His rebuke specifically has to do with the way in which they are making these plans. There's a heart posture behind their statements. Skip down to verse 16. This is what he says. He says, as it is, as it currently stands, as you're making these plans that today or tomorrow, we're going to go here, do this business, make this money. Here's the, the goal. You boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So James says, the problem is not that you're making plans. The way you are making plans for the future is arrogant. You're boasting in your planning. You're arrogant in your planning. And this is evil. This is not okay. This is not of the Lord, which makes us ask, okay, why does he say this? Like, why is he so against the way that they are making plans? Well, look back at specifically what he says. He says this, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You see, there's some arrogant assumptions wrapped up in the heart posture behind that statement. 
First, it assumes that this group will live as long as they please. Right? When are they going to go? I don't know, today, tomorrow, sometime in the future. We'll just, yeah, whenever we feel like it, we'll get up and we'll go to that city. They, they assume they have control over the timeline of their lives. Second, it assumes that not only will they live as long as they please, but that they can make whatever plans they want. So when? I don't know, maybe tomorrow. What are we going to do? Maybe that city, maybe this city. I don't know, it's kind of up to us. We're going to do whatever we want. We'll go when we want, to where we want, and do what we want. The third poor assumption is that it can, assumes they can control the outcome of the plans that they make. When are we going to go? I don't know, maybe tomorrow. Where? That place or that place. And what's going to happen? We're going to make some money. It's all arrogance. It's all boastful. Notice the end of verse 13. It says, and make a profit. So they not only think they controlled the time and the circumstances and the actions, but also the outcome of all of those things. If I could summarize kind of the whole posture of arrogant planning that James wants to address in one phrase, it would be this. We control tomorrow. We control tomorrow. And James says, as it currently stands, that is boastful and arrogant because who's missing? God, right? We, we're going to go here when we want and do what we want and get the outcome that we want when we want it, how we want it. Church, how much of our planning and decision-making can often sound the same way? I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to get this degree. I'm going to move to this city. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to live in this part of the town. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have this. Me, me, me. I'm going to get married at this age. I'm going to have kids at this time. I'm going to have this type of house. I'm going to have this type of dog, and so on and so forth, or cats. And again, the problem is not for James in the planning. The problem is in the arrogance about the planning. The problem is, is the attempts to move forward in the decisions and planning without God, to run our own lives and make our own decisions apart from the wisdom of God in our lives, to think that we are the captain of our ship and the masters of our futures. Although the way one scholar puts it, he says James 4, 13 through 17 is the epitome of what he calls practical atheism. It's living life with the framework as if God does not actually exist, or if he does, then he's just there to either support what I want or to stay out of my way while I do what I want when I want with the outcome that I want. And James says it's evil, it's boastful, it's arrogant that you would plan for your future without God, wrapped up in your own goals, with your own dreams, your own desires. But then he continues, not only does he say it's evil, but he's also going to show them why it's foolish. So not only is it against the will of God because it's evil, it's boastful, it's arrogant, he's also going to say, hey, also this doesn't work. And here's why. Look at verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James says, do you not realize in your boastful, arrogant planning your inability to control anything in your life? Do you not realize your distinct lack of control as a human? You see, here's some problems with the statement. James is going to outline three. Three problems with the statement that they are making, that today or tomorrow we're going to go here or there, we're going to make the money. There's some problems. Number one, we think we control tomorrow. James says, what is your life? You're a mist. We think, I'm going to do this. When I want, here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. And James says, what is your life? You're a mist. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not even promised the rest of today. How can you arrogantly say how, what you'll do or how it will go tomorrow when you don't even know you're going to get tomorrow? 
And this theme of the uncertain brevity or mist of our lives is a theme the scriptures refer to often. And almost always when it, the scriptures refer to this theme of our, our lives being brief or a mist, it's to remind us that life is short so that we will give all of our days on the earth for the glory of God. One of my favorite passages that talk about this comes from King David in Psalm 39. This is what he writes. He says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths, and my life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. And then look at what he says next. He says, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. David says in Psalm 39, Lord, remind me how brief my life is. Not so I get defeated, not so I get depressed, not so I throw my hands up in apathy saying, well, whatever, I guess it's short anyway. He says, remind me of the length of my days so that I will remember so much of this turmoil doesn't matter. So much of my anxiety, so much of my worry, so much of my doubt and my dread and my tossing around these decisions that I have for the future in my head until I'm sick remind me of the measure of my day so that I would remember that in light of eternity, these things are fleeting. So much of it gets put in my proper place when I fix my eyes on you. That decision that you're wrestling with right now that's crippling you with anxiety, do we do this or do we do that? That running ahead, that making arrogant plans, thinking we control our lives. Lord, remind us that it's foolish. Remind us that our lives are brief. James wants us to focus on our our frailty of our lives to remind us our frailty in making our plans. That we're not promised tomorrow. I love the way first century Roman philosopher, a guy named Seneca, he was writing around the same time as James, not a Christian, but here's how he says it. He says, he who was venturing investments by land and sea, who had also entered public life and left no type of business untried, during the very realization of financial success and during the very onrush of the money that flowed into his coffers was snatched from the world. But how foolish it is to set out one's life when one is not even the owner of tomorrow. How foolish that we would set out to be the masters of our own lives when we're not even promised tomorrow. That's the first problem. They think, we control tomorrow. James says, you're missed. It's brief. The second is that we think we control tomorrow. James says, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. So not only are you not know if you're going to get tomorrow, if you get it, you don't know what's going to happen when you get it. James says, you don't know, not know what tomorrow will bring. I think this one, I think, doesn't really need an explanation given the last two years. <laughs> I think we're all pretty aware of that. I don't know if you're familiar. This week marks the two-year mark since the first like global-wide any amount of shutdowns and stay-at-homes went out into effect, which is crazy. That is 2022, and it's March 6th. And so I think we feel this on a really tangible level. I think some of us can go, yeah, I, I know, right? Some of our frustration over the past two years has been the inability to know what tomorrow holds. Like, how do we make plans? How do we make this education plan? Are our kids going to be in school or going to be at home? How do we make this travel plan? Can we go somewhere? Can we not? Am I going to get sick? Is my family member going to get sick? So much of our uncertainty and pain and heartache over the last two years has been not knowing what tomorrow holds, which really has always been true. We've just been faced with that reality over the past two years. It's always been true that we haven't controlled tomorrow. Listen, you can make the best laid plans for what your day is going to look like tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to wake up and your car's not going to start. You're going to show up to work and you're going to get fired? You're going to get that call, that news? You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And James says, hey, first, you're missed. Your life is brief. Second, you don't know what tomorrow holds. But then he leads to the third problem. We think we control tomorrow. James says, no, you're completely dependent on God. 
completely dependent on him. So we can't control that we'll get tomorrow. We can't control what we'll do tomorrow. And most certainly, we cannot control the outcome of what we do tomorrow. They say, we're going to make a profit. James is like, maybe. You're not in charge. James says, what is your life? Haven't you learned by now you're not in control? Haven't you learned that everything you have is a grace gift from God? These are the people more than almost anybody else in Christianity should know and understand the grace gift of God, right? These are the people coming out of the Jewish religion of rules and laws and do this and don't do that. If you want to be right with God, they've now found the good news of Jesus, that they can be right with God, not by works, but by faith in Christ. And James says, you should understand Everything you have, more than anybody else, you should get this, is a grace gift from God, including tomorrow, and including what he decides to bring. Everything is a gift. I love the way one theologian, Dan Doriani, puts it about this passage. He says this, he says, we must confess that we are all heirs of God's generosity. If a woman is intelligent, did she earn it or inherit it? If a man is an athlete, did he construct his muscle fibers? The achiever may think, but I have worked hard to hone my skills. Perhaps so, but even then we can ask if God did not guide our desires and nudge us towards godly aspirations. We are completely dependent on God for life and breath and everything from our salvation to the dinner we're going to eat after this. Everything is a gift from him. And so the best, most thorough, well thought through and executed plans mean nothing without the sovereign hand of God. Doesn't matter how well you plan, which is a deep shot to my pride and control. Because I want to plan everything. I want to know tomorrow I'm going to wake up at this time, I'm going to do this for this hour, this for this 30 minutes, this thing, this thing, this thing. And if I do A plus B, I'm going to get C. And James says, What is your life? You're completely dependent on the good hand of God. So, what should we do? This is what he's going to tell us as he continues in his writing, verses 15 and 17. What should we do if we're completely dependent on God? What do we do? Verse 15, instead, James says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And then verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So what should we do? Two things. Number one, we make plans. It's one of James's instructions. Make some plans. Notice James says at the end of that quote, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, what? We will live and do this or that. Plans are a good thing. Plans are a godly thing. Making plans is not bad. We're not called to just live life throwing our hands in the air going, que sera, sera, I'm fatalistic, nihilistic, whatever happens, let's go for it. God's in control, so I'm just kind of going to sit there and wait. James says, no, you should make some plans. You should make some plans. We will live and do this or that. I think about this idea of making plans as the faithfulness of Ruth, right? Remember Ruth chapter one? Ruth says, hey, you're going back, Naomi, I'm going with you. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Your God's my God. Your people's my people. Let's go. Your home's my home. Let's get it. She makes plans. So much of the scriptures, we have so many godly examples of godly people making plans. In fact, this is my encouragement to that first group I mentioned. Some of us, the encouragement out of this scripture and this passage is to get better at making plans. Some of you guys need to make some plans. Some of you are like, I'm type B. It doesn't matter. I'm not saying you have to be type A. I'm not saying you got to plan the vacations for the next 50 years, okay? I'm not saying you have to be me, but I am saying that good godliness requires us to be willing to make some plans based on our personality, yes, our wiring, yes, but still being able to make some, we will live and do this or that. And some of us, we've never sat down and had anything that says anything like, I'm going to do this or that. 
We just receive. We just respond. We just, okay, whatever's going to happen, I'm just going to respond to it. And James says, no, you should say, we will live and do this or that. If you're not able to make some plans, you're not able to be fully obedient to verse 17. Right? Because what does verse 17 say? He who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, what? Sins. So sin is not just bad things we're not supposed to do and end up doing. Sin is also good things we're supposed to do that we don't end up doing. And part of the reason why we don't do these good things we know we're invited and called and commanded to do in Scripture, i.e. share the gospel, care for the poor, be generous with our time and our finances, study God's word and spend time with him in prayer, part of the reason why we don't do these good things we're called and commanded to do is because we don't know how to plan. So track with me, right? Part of the reason why you're not good at reading the Bible or you might struggle to pray or spend time with Jesus is because you haven't planned for it. And so you're like, hey, I'm really good at making sure I go to the gym or I'm good at making sure I go to work on time. Well, yeah, it's because you have a plan. You set an alarm and a calendar and you make sure you do it. And part of the reason why we don't do it is because we don't make plans. Part of the reason why we don't share the gospel is because we don't make plans to. We don't make plans to engage our neighbors. We don't make plans to engage our friends. We don't make plans to engage our family. Part of the reason why we, some of us struggle to be financially generous is we don't have a plan. We just throw our money at stuff. We need to make a budget. We need to make a money plan. James says, make some plans to the glory of God. Set some goals. Have some aspirations. And all the type A people said, amen. <laughs> Got to make some plans. Number two, we humbly submit our plans to the Lord. We humbly submit our plans to the Lord. James says in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills. And I want you to hear me on this. If the Lord wills is not simply a fun Christian cliche to say. We have a running joke in our community group, group me, where we'll jokingly be like, if the Lord wills, like that's just kind of like what we throw around, which I think is very fun. We should continue to do that. But if the Lord wills is not simply a fun Christian cliche to say, and I want you to notice this too, if the Lord wills is also not a way of getting God to bless the plans you want to make already. You hear that? If the Lord wills is not a way of saying, hey, God, I want to do this. Make sure it happens for me, please. I really want to go here. I want to do this thing. Can you just make sure you bless it? Like, if you will, will you will this? It's not what it means. If the Lord wills is a posture of our hearts where we submit both the outcome and the direction of our plans to the Heavenly Father. Let me say that again. If the Lord wills is a posture of our hearts where we submit both the outcome and the direction to our Heavenly Father, we learn to live with open hands. God, I made some plans. I have some goals. I have some aspirations. I have some dreams. I have some things that I would love to see happen in my business, in my family, in my friendships, in my future. I would love to see some things, God, but it's your will, not mine. Church planning mentor of mine uh, used to give me this advice when we were getting started as a church. He would say, Tim, when it comes to church planting, make a bunch of plans and write them all in pencil. I think that's just good advice for our lives before the Lord, right? Make a bunch of plans for your life. Set some goals, set some dreams, make some plans as a family with some friends, as a community group, make some plans of what you want to see God do and write them all in pencil and hold them all with an open hand. God, I think this is what we should do with school for our kids. What do you think? It's your will, not mine. God, I think we should buy this house. It's out here. It's going to cost this much money. It's mortgage is going to be this. It's your will, not mine. God, I think I should date this person. I think I should marry this person. I've talked about it with community. I prayed about it, but it's your will, not mine. We leave it with open hands. And, and honestly, this is the prayer Jesus teaches us to pray as his disciples. Matthew 6.10, right? Your kingdom come. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, here's my best made plans. I've studied, I've thought about it, I've written some things down, I've assessed the situation. Here's my best laid plans for the future. But God, your will, not mine. 
You want to change them? Change them. You want to shift? Shift it. I don't, it's up to you. It's your will, your kingdom, your glory, your plans, not mine. Here's the good news in all of this. We have a good father who is actively working among his people and in our world. It's the good news. So wherever you find yourself on the planning spectrum, so if you're like, I'm the chronic non-planner, I'm the go with the, the flow person, here's what you need to hear. You have a good father who is actively working among his people and in his world, and he's inviting you to make some plans and to join him in that work to the glory of God. He is active, and he's working, and he's moving. If you're the one racked with anxiety over what the future holds, you're like, I made plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E. I got like 15 plans and backup plans for those 15 plans. If you're just wrecked with anxiety over what the future holds, I need you to hear that you follow a good God who is actively at work among his people and in his world. He's a good father. For those of us who might be heartbroken over the plans and the dreams we made, they're not coming true. You're like, I made some plans. I'm done with that. None of them came to fruition. I want you to hear that you have a good, gracious, kind father who is actively at work among his people and in his world. And for those of us who are boasting, running ahead, arrogant, making our own plans, doing what we want, no thought of God, running towards our future, full steam ahead, what we want, I need you to hear, God is actively working among his people and in his world, and he invites you to hold those plans with open arms and open hands. All right, that's James's teaching. We make plans, not arrogantly, open hands. We submit our wills to the will of God, trusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father, right? That's what living faith does. Living faith humbly plans for the future with God. Here's how I want to spend the rest of our time. I think it would be a miss, and I would get a lot of emails and questions tomorrow about, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what do I actually do? How do I actually make plans? How do I actually make decisions? So I want to spend the last 10 or so minutes just giving you eight really fast, boom, 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 practical steps to decision-making. Don't hear eight and be like, eight, are you serious? It's going to be great, Okay. What does that mean? I just want to end with some pastoral wisdom, help. If the goal is to honor God and live wise and live with living faith, how do we make God-honoring decision make decisions as we plan? All right, eight things, we'll hit them quick. Number one, pray. Pray. This really should be done throughout, like before, during, and after. I just want to put it first so we all understand. We're followers of Jesus. We seek him. All right, we pray. We go to the Lord throughout this whole process. This is kind of the overarching one. We seek the face of God. We pause. We listen to him. We hear what he has to say. Let me just give you encouragement. This is more convictional for me as I was thinking about it this week. There is a difference between praying and worrying. And sometimes I, in my flesh, like to worry about something a lot and think about it a lot and call it praying. It's not. It's not praying. So what happens is I dwell on something and I touch it over in my head a bunch like, well, what do I do this, that? And I like problem solve in worry and anxiety. And then I get to the end of the day and it's like, that felt like prayer, right? Even though I never actually took it to the Lord. So let me just encourage you, praying and worrying, different things. We bring it to God. We talk to God and we listen to him. That's what prayer is. Number two, assess all of the facts. Assess all of the facts. Get all the data, all the pertinent information that you can Thinking about switching careers, you should sit with someone who's in that career. Ask them questions. Hey, I'm thinking about switching careers. Can you just give me facts about the career? You're thinking about going back to school. Get some facts. How much is it going to cost? Where should you go? What should you study? Like, just, just get some facts. If the Lord wills, doesn't mean we check our brains at the door. All right? Like, let's, let's use our minds. God has given us our minds. Let's cognitively use our cognition. Number three. <laughs> all right? Number three. Assess all of your feelings. 
This is a step we don't often do. Uh, this is, uh, my wife is super helpful in this. Uh, if you ever sit down with her and ask her like, hey, can you give me feedback on a decision? She has this chart where she'll outline decision one, decision two, good motivation, bad motivation. And she says, hey, the first thing you need to do is list all of the good motivation for decision one and the bad motivation for decision one. And then list the good motivation for decision two and the bad motivation for decision two. And I think that's so helpful because often we don't check what's going on in our hearts when it comes to these decisions we're making. And so we don't realize, hey, maybe I'm operating out of good motivation. Like there's some innate God-given desires here. Uh, oftentimes as Christians, we think denying ourselves means we can't actually go after some of the stuff that God has told us to want. <laughs> and so it's okay to want some things in life. It's okay to like, hey, I kind of want this career. I think this would be a good thing to the glory of God. Like check the good motivations and also check the bad motivations. Am I responding out of fear? Am I responding out of pride? Am I responding out of guilt or shame? Am I trying to prove something to myself or someone else? We have to check and see what are the good and bad feelings going on in our hearts. And uh, while we're all in the room and I have the mic, I've been wanting to talk about this. Um, don't believe the lie of peace. And here's what I mean by that. Don't trust, uh, quote, well, I just feel good about it. Because so often what can happen is we can feel good about a decision when it's not actually the right decision. And this is something that I hear so often from folks. I remember having a conversation uh, specifically a few years ago, talking with a friend of mine, and he made a decision that was like blatantly against the Bible. Like it wasn't like uh, maybe black and white wise. It was like, I got four verses, <laughs> very straightforward. This is just off. And I remember a group of us brought it to him and said, hey man, this is not like this, this, what you're doing, and this, what it says in the Bible is not lining up, and God's word is our authority, what's happening here? And he said, I don't know, guys, but really, I mean, I can't, I can't not do it because I feel good about it. Like, I don't know why I would feel good about something that's against God's word, and I feel at peace with this decision, so I'm going to do it. And so let me encourage you, don't believe just because you have peace means it's the right thing. Now, it might be, it also might not be. And here's why I know that. Three reasons. One, the Bible says the heart is wicked and deceitful beyond all things who can comprehend it. And so our sinful hearts can often feel at peace about things we shouldn't feel at peace about. Second, the mission and calling and will of God often comes with risk and uncertainty, which leads us into situations that don't immediately bring us feelings of peace. So sometimes he calls us to share the gospel with our neighbor, and that doesn't necessarily bring good feelings. <laughs> sometimes it makes us nervous or scared. Sometimes he calls us to give up everything and to move overseas for the sake of taking the gospel to the nations. That might not feel like the very peaceful decision in the moment. But here's the third promise, and here's why I can say that too. God promises to take us to and be with us in the midst of those hard circumstances. So he offers, hey, maybe the, the decision itself isn't going to bring this peaceful feeling you want, but me, I come with peace, even in the midst of the hard. And here's a verse, it's not going to be on the screen, I forgot to add it, but write it down and read it later. Isaiah 58, 11, I think it's so helpful here. Isaiah 58, 11, he says this, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. So sometimes God takes us by his will into the midst of a scorched place and wants to satisfy our desires when we're there, in the midst of that. So sometimes that decision doesn't come with good feelings or peace. So often our decisions want to be to avoid the scorched places when God says, no, I want to take you there so I can satisfy you in the midst of it. All right, that's number three. That's my, my pastoral rant. Number four, study the scriptures. Study the scriptures. Psalm 19 uh, tells us the law of God, the word of God is perfect and sure and right and pure. And then in verse 11, he says, by the word of God is your servant warned. 
And so I put this here because I think it's a good idea to get all of the facts and discern all of the feelings and then hold them up to our authority, which is God's word. And God's word is our authority because God is our authority and God's word is the revelation of God to his people. So God's word stands as our authority. And so you want to say, okay, here's the facts, here's the feelings, and then you're looking for two things in the scriptures. One, are there any commands? Are there any commands? So there's some stuff in the Bible that it's explicitly yes or no, all right? If you get that and it's like explicitly yes, explicitly no, you can just stop and just do it or don't do it, all right? So it's not like, hey, should I share the gospel? It's like, oh, maybe I'll pray about it, consult community, spend some time. No, it's just, just do it. The Bible says do it. There's some things like that. Look for commands. Second, you want to look for principles. Principles. Are there, are there ways the Bible talks about this type of decision, ways it addresses your feelings towards it, the steps you're taking, principles of wisdom you could apply to the decision? And this is a needed step. You don't just want to end with like, does the Bible say yes or no? You want to go to, okay, what does the Bible say in the midst of wisdom principles towards this decision? So maybe you realize in assessing your feelings, hey, I got, I'm, got some shame. I've got some guilt. I'm making decisions out of shame. The Bible has some stuff to say about our shame. And so we want to apply the Bible, not only commands, but also principles. Number five, seek wise counsel. Seek wise counsel. Find some folks who love Jesus and love you and get their input. Hey, what do you guys think? What would you say about this decision, this plan? Uh, Two helpful things to be careful on. Uh, Number one, we tend to only ask people who will agree with us. So you want to be careful about that. Second, if people don't immediately agree with us, oftentimes we're tempted to ask enough people until we find someone who agrees with us. So you want to be careful. Be willing to receive feedback. If everyone in your community is like, hey, I know you guys think this, but we all collectively with the Spirit think this. We should be willing to listen to that. Uh, Throughout church history, Christians have practiced what they call circles of decision-making. And I love it. I think we should bring it back. What they would do is they would basically gather uh, wise, mature, godly Christians that loved Jesus and loved them, and the person or the couple that was wrestling through a decision, they would present all the information to this circle of decision-making. They would say, here's everything I know about it. Ask whatever questions you want. And the circle would ask a bunch of questions. What about this? What about that? Tell me about this. Tell me about that. And at the end, the individual or the two people would say, all right, you make the decision. And that makes us feel very uncomfortable because we live in the 21st century America where we think autonomy and individualism is the number one thing. It makes us very uncomfortable. But this was a common church practice for thousands of years where they would say, hey, I trust the spirit in you. I don't trust in my own motivations here. What do you think? Help me. Uh, When Lindsay and I were first uh, thinking about dating, we did something similar to this. We went to our community. Uh, At the time, guys that I had been walking with for about four years that I knew loved Jesus and loved me. And I just said, hey, guys, if you don't want us to date, you don't think it's a good idea, you know my past, you know my heart, just tell me no, and it'll be a no. And they were like, yeah, we think you should. And I was like, all right, cool. I think we should start having that posture a little more as followers of Jesus. With wisdom, yes. Discernment, yes. The right who, yes, absolutely. But I think there's some wisdom in that. Saying, hey, you love me, you love Jesus, help me. Let's make the decision together. Three more. Number six, seek God's glory. Seek God's glory. What in all of this will bring the most glory to God? We talked about this a ton last week. Our first and foremost goal as followers of Jesus is God's glory, not our own. What is going to bring God the most glory? Not make my life easier, not set me up the best, bring the most glory to God. Number seven, if you still can't decide, wait. That's okay. There's some freedom of like, hey, I'm not sure. All right, let's take some time. Let's take a few more weeks. Uh, Part of our culture too is we're impulsive. We like it now. We want it now. We want the decision now. It's okay to take some more time. 
Read some more scriptures, seek more counsel, do some more prayer. Number eight, trust God's sovereignty and do something. It's in all caps, so I'm supposed to say it like this, do something. At some point, you have to make a decision and go, right? Don't be stuck in analysis paralysis where you're in that endless scrolling. I just don't want to say no to some options, so let's just keep, at some point, make a decision and go. And here's the beautiful thing about God. Two things. One, a lot of decisions are changeable. Not everything, not every decision. Some decisions are very changeable. So maybe you're like, I think I'm supposed to do this career. You get into career, six months later, you're like, nah, bad. You can change. That's okay. But option two, in those decisions that are not changeable, trust that God gives more grace. Trust that he's present. Trust that he'll meet you in that scorched place. Hey, I don't, I don't know that we should have moved to that city. Okay, it's worth praying about. Sometimes God meets us in that scorched place. Hey, I don't, I don't know that, that I, should, I should have taken that job. But okay. Maybe you're supposed to change jobs, but maybe God wants to give you more grace and meet you in that scorched place. Trust the Lord. Take a step of faith. Here's the good news. We'll kind of lead into communion with this. We have a good father who is actively working working among his people in our world. And and one of the examples I keep thinking about when it comes to this submission to the will of God uh, is Jesus in the garden. Luke 22, 42, uh, he's about to go to the cross, and, and one of the relational dynamics between Jesus, uh, God the Son, and God the Father is this idea of submission, that God the Son submits his will to God the Father in the mystery of the Trinity. But one of the things he prays in Luke twenty two forty two is he says, Lord, if possible, take this cup from me. God, if there's any other way to do this whole redeem the whole world thing, salvation thing, like please some way else. But then he says this beautiful line, he says, but not my will, but yours, Father, be done. What a beautiful posture for us to live in as the people of God. God, not my will, but yours be done. And every Sunday when we gather, we end uh, this time of, of sitting under the preaching of God's word with communion. And it's a chance to remember that Jesus said, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup, but not my will, but yours be done. And him following and submitting to the will of God took him to the cross, but took him through the cross to the empty tomb. We get to celebrate that. We get to remember that we have a good father who provides for our every need, including our greatest need in the need of salvation, the need of forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption with God. And so we're going to move into a time of taking communion. You should have a little uh, cup there on your seat. It's got a little wafer and a little juice. If you're not a Christian, this is probably the only practice, one of the only practices we'd ask you not to take with us, not because we don't want you to participate, but because you'd be saying that this is true about you and it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, we do invite you to take Christ, to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. I'll be down front. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian after the gathering. But church, for all who, all who trust in Christ, let's first take the bread. This bread represents Jesus' body broken on the cross on our behalf, given up for us to make us right with God. Take and eat. In the same way, we take this little cup of juice, which represents the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus that was poured out, which the Psalms say cleanse us and make us whiter than snow. And every time we drink this blood, we remember that Jesus went to the cross and went through the cross to the empty tomb on our behalf. So remember the sacrifice of Christ's blood for your sin as you take and drink. There's going to be some folks in the back who would love to pray with you and for you if you have anything going on. Maybe you're wrestling with a decision. You'd love some prayer. They'd love to pray with you. Just a moment. We're going to stand and sing and worship. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your kindness to us. God, I love the example of Jesus in Luke 22. 
Lord, where he is in the garden and he's praying and he's seeking the, the face of his father in the garden before he goes to the greatest torture and the greatest betrayal and the greatest suffering. And he says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup. Lord, if it's possible, let this be any other way, but yet not my will, yours be done. And he goes to the cross on behalf of our sin. He takes our punishment that we deserve. He dies the death that we deserve, and yet he rises again, defeating Satan, sin, and death so we can have life forever with you. God, in that same Savior, Christ, you invite us to pray in the same way, Lord, not our will, but yours be done. As I pray for those of us in the room who are facing decisions right now, trying to make plans for the next six months, year, six years now, who over the course of the next year, five years, 10 years, will be faced with hard decisions. God, I pray that we will not pull back in apathy and anxiety. God, I pray that we will not run ahead of you in boastful arrogance, God, but we would say, hey, Lord, this is what I think. This is my best laid plans. This is what I think we should do, Lord, but not my will. Yours be done in my life. God, if that means the scorched places, Lord, take us to the scorched places. If that means the places of uncertainty, Lord, take us to the places of uncertainty. If that means the places that are less comfortable and more doubtful and more confusing, but more in the middle of your will, God, would you take us to those places? Let us be a people that submit our plans to you because you're good and you're not distant. You're active and you're working in our lives and in our worlds. We can trust you. We can join you. We love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.